Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 44 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about Metropolitan, a movie from 1990 by a gentleman by the name of Whit Stillman, who I had never really heard of before at all, though I've heard of some of his movies. He actually wrote and directed this It was his debut for both of those things. He ran an illustration agency in New York City while he was writing this movie and Barcelona, which he actually wrote first. And though it was his second movie to come out, yeah, he was an illustration agent in New York. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to make movies. And here we go. He uh, he did it. <laughs> Good job, Whit. So it was released on January 20th of 1990 at Sundance and also August 3rd, 1990 as a worldwide release. Now, here's the thing. Those dates should let us know, mm, was this really a Christmas movie? We should all be scratching our little heads. It had a budget of 210 to 225000 And guess what, Mike? He actually sold rights to his first apartment for the 50000 kind of just hit up family and friends for like the remaining money and to like but they were really like um oh gosh what do i want to say like kind of like guerrilla warfare with the way that they filmed this one like a lot of just like exterior shots you could have for free or being out on a sidewalk or that type of thing or secret cameras that didn't cost much yeah yeah so all the scenes that take place in this movie inside the plaza it was i mean there were stories that the cast told uh at their 25 reunion 25 year reunion for this movie they were talking about how like people like pas and stuff had walkie talkies in their pockets and when security guards would walk by they would be like all right we're good we're good and then like they would roll their cameras like guerrilla warfare style like you said shoot their scenes inside the plaza and then like run away um and (laughs) all of these interiors and all these lush you know upper east side apartments that was all friends apartments that they let them shoot in and sometimes it was friends of friends sometimes it was friends of friends of friends uh calling in favors to let them shoot uh at at night always at night this entire movie was basically shot entirely at night really interesting indie filmmaking at its finest three million bucks on a two hundred twenty five thousand dollar budget that's amazing i mean he kind of wrote his own check so he comes out with barcelona like i said it was the first movie he had written he had decided he wanted to do metropolitan first because knowing he was going to be calling in favors and 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 having to kind of beg borrow and steal to get the movie done he figured doing it in new york where he was from would be easier than trying to do it in barcelona where he wouldn't know anyone so this movie does so well it you know it ups his budget so he's able to do barcelona that movie is kind of a cult classic favorite and that spurs on the last days of disco which does not actually do well but yeah i mean this guy's had a career every four every four to eight years he kind of comes out with a movie if you're a fan of like wes anderson's kind of like quirky humor you're probably gonna like this movie dialogue heavy very 
eccentric people. Is that fair to call these 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 late teens, uh, late teen socialites very eccentric? I think so. I think so. And also because they're that weird mix of like young people talking about very like avant-garde topics that kind of like throw you back. Like you're like, what the heck? Like this is not what th- these types of people would normally be talking about in my brain, this age group. Right. So it's like, what is this? <laughs> and so it creates like that funny little irony, I guess, that, that makes you kind of like lean in like, what are they doing? What are they talking about? But let me give you the one sentence plot. Oh, okay? please. Thank you. Here we go. A group of young upper class Manhattanites are blithely passing through the gala debutante season when an unusual outsider joins them and stirs them up. Now, I feel like unusual outsider makes it sound like <laughs> we covered the outsider. Right. And it makes me feel like he's going to morph into some sort of freaky, gooey alien or something. I feel like that's that's a little strong in the wording. He does shake up their group, though. He, he Sure, he, sure. Yeah, he is, a, uh, he is a disruptor in the Fourier socialist sense, uh, you know. <laughs> I want to say he's just outside their social circle, yeah. though. Like he's not an out, like an unusual outside. Like, no, he's just someone who's not typically in their clique of friends and has different points of view, right? Yeah, it's like when a poor kid would come on the Gossip Girl. You know, it's like oh, you okay. watch Gossip Girl, and then you know some, yeah, like maybe a scholarship kid enters the show, and he's maybe got like a like a patch sewed up over, or like a secondhand blazer on their prep school. He's that guy, essentially. You know, a formerly rich kid who's now kind of down on his luck, but still understands the sensibilities of these people uh, while wallowing in it. But also deriding it at the same time, which is really the the worst kind of intellectual snob you can you can really come across, right? Like, oh, I'm so above all of these things, but I'll be here tomorrow night when we meet again. That's that's kind of know. Tom. See, you know who it a little bit reminded me of though was the kid from Caddyshack, like the the caddy who wants to be in the like upper crust of life, so he surrounds himself with that, but he's not really like when he goes home, he's he's completely like got like all these he's very very much in a different social circle than them but he like surrounds himself by them so i don't i think the words like unusual or i don't find him to be that like off you know he's no. just he's just different than them but that's pretty much it so i, I don't know i thought that was kind of extreme they treat the him, they i think they treat him a bit like a curiosity though they do they do they, you know i think that's the initial attraction to tom even down to his red hair is like a metaphor for his outsiderness right he looks different than these guys he wears a london fog trench coat instead of a dark woolen overcoat you know he is set apart he has to run his rented tuxedo back to the formal wear shop because he doesn't own his tuxedo all these guys they live in their tuxedo this week of the year and they own their tuxedos you know like which we should talk about that for like a hot second so so that should give you guys a huge indicator of who these people are (laughs) they own their own tuxedos okay the women are constantly in like strapless gowns that's pretty much all you need to know about like whether or not you're going to relate to this group of would we call them young adults they're like they're late they're i think they're late teens they're you know in that 19 20 year old range i would i would, I would uh, so say. okay so i'm gonna say 20 something right so around the early 20s yeah right? I'm not quite I, I, w- I would not they're not legal to drink is my impression this is right yeah so in that 1920 set yeah 
And definitely still like like the party goes until the parents come home kind of comments. Like there's still parents involved in this. They're just sort of like above that in some rules wise in a lot of ways. Yeah, the parents are really this is the kind of story, though. And and we you see this a lot when you're dealing with Upper East Side Manhattan teens in stories like a gossip girl gossip girl is a, is a really good tv show connection so to these specific. well it's it, it's a good depiction uh it's a tv show depiction of this same stratus of people the gossip girl set being slightly younger these would be the older brothers and sisters of the gossip girl set they have parents they weren't hatched but the parents are invisible because they're at one of their other houses or they're, you know, traveling to Europe for business. So, yeah, in theory, parents are here, but these guys have the rule of the roost kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It just depends on who you are, because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to say that they're not accessible. I know you're trying to, like, really pigeonhole them into, like, this Upper East Side Manhattanite. But guess what? I knew plenty of people when I was growing up where they their parents would go out of town and there was a drawer full of cash and... And they were to fend for themselves and it not in a sad way in like a do whatever you want kind of way it's not just about this this is an echelon of kid and i'm not saying those people owned their own tuxedo there is a group of teens that this may appeal to or just to have that sort of a voyeuristic like what would that life look like gossip girls is awesome to to bring up but gilmore girls for me is like hugely like just weighing on me this entire story i was like man we've got to talk about casting because there's just one one guy that makes it all. So Christopher Eggman, who plays Nick Smith, you guys might not recognize the name, but I recognize his face and most especially his voice right away. I mean, my head like snapped up. This is Jason Digger Styles from Gilmore Girls, and he is a young Jason Digger Styles. And the amazing thing about that is that this is exactly the right time frame. Like this came out in 1990. We know if you watch the episodes where Lorelai and Rory go to, they go to Harvard to visit, there's like a plaque that says class of 1990. And she's like, Lorelai's like looking at it because she would have been class of 1990. This entire group is the right age, the right everything. And for me, if you look at this movie, like the the origin story of Digger, and you could just imagine like Lorelai's just in the other room or she's just at another party but this is like where digger went the rest of the night i think you will actually be super into this movie the dialogue matches a gilmore girl like quick and bigger vocabulary than you feel like these people should have and they say tons of words when they could just say like one sentence and it works though for me the set dressing everything that's going on with it i know that these are just real people's apartments but if you don't get that emily richard vibe uh i don't know <laughs> who else like lives like this if you like gilmore girls i actually suggest you guys check this out only if you can look at it from okay i'm gonna find out what digger does like on the weekends when he was back like as like a 19 year old i want to see everything especially the one when they're all like all the girls are wearing the white dresses and they just came back and they were talking about like dates and stuff like that that is like a huge part. I mean, there, Rory has a debutante party, a whole coming out thing. And, you know, the the whole you have to wear like elbow length gloves and you have to get your escort and blah, blah, blah. Like that's all talked about in Gilmore Girls. So that actually happens in this movie. I, I just think it's like remarkable that they I don't know if this is why Christopher was cast as Digger, because like maybe Amy Sherman Palladino saw him in this movie. I don't know, but man, does it work. This movie seems like it would be very high on Amy Sherman Palladino's watch list. Yes. Yes, it, it does. It, it, it seems like a very ancestral cousin to everything that has influenced her work. Uh, you know, Gilmore Girls on Onward. 
that she's fascinated by this world too. Like that, that she would like be like, what goes on? Like, look at the rules, look at the, all the things that they have to do, but also have this outsider character, this one who doesn't click in with her. I mean, that's very Lorelai, you know, she, it's, it's her life as an adult is the more down home, can't pay the bills kind of life. She doesn't stay in the social cir- circle. I, I mean, a- Emily Gilmore, you know, forcing Lorelai into a, a dead ball dress seems seems like yes definitely something oh, that is happening Mike, you wouldn't know you know what happens though that's when they figure out she's pregnant because her debutante ball dress is too tight <laughs> See? so that scene actually freaking happens well i, so, I can yeah. i can deepen this even a little bit further for you oh really go ahead because so budgetary constraints didn't let Whit Stillman make exactly the movie that he wanted to. You may watch this movie and feel like, all right, this is definitely New York in 1990, but it feels a little bit throwbackish. Uh, there's a couple of movies that take place around this time in 19 in New York at the, in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, where New York is gorgeous at nighttime. Bonfire of the Vanities, not an okay book, a horrible movie, but does actually capture the decadent aspects of New York life at this time. The 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 chasm between haves and have-nots in New York at this period of time, this is a very specific period of time in Manhattan, is wide. And so you have this lush existence on the Upper East Side, but, you know, if you were to go into, like, Hell's Kitchen, you know, down on, like, you know, 34th Street on, on the West Side, you'd want to have mace in your hand at all times kind of thing. You know, it's, and I think this movie captures the Upper East set well. And and it made me very nostalgic for Manhattan, especially at wintertime, especially at Christmas time. I mean, those living rooms with those the the fifteen foot trees that are that are beautifully decorated and the, the Victorian furniture and it just lush. Just lush and decadent. And I loved all of that. It it made me feel a very specific kind of time and place. But having said that, I think that the timing of this is fascinating. I thought this is where you were going with it because how it says like Christmas Eve, not so long ago, but it doesn't give you a year. There's something about that that actually works very well with Gilmore Girls because on both sides, on both the rich half where it seems like they're stuck in time and doing these super uber traditional but very outdated ritualistic kind of stuff and they want Rory to do it. It just seems so out of place. But then when you look over at like say Stars Hollow and they're like almost like 1950s like they are it's a big hullabaloo when they're putting up one traffic light in the town and you know they just have this very everybody knows each other's business and they walk everywhere and all this stuff like it's all very quaint and adorable but also not of this time so i think you you can if you really like that feeling you would get that from this movie i totally got lost in my point talking about how the movie kind of captures manhattan in 1990 if if you know what to look for i totally never even got to my point Uh, Whit stillman wanted this and if and there are some nods to this and in his head this actually takes place in the 1969 debutante season he wanted this movie to be the deb the deb ball season right before the world changes the way he sees it right before woodstock right before vietnam becomes front page news every single night the, the last the last gasp of the kids 
and they talk about this in the movie, how they are the children of a gener- of generations that no longer exist anymore, of a wealth class that doesn't really exist anymore. They're kind of the last gasp of that way of life. For him, that's 1969 deb- debutante season. So that fits in perfectly because that would have been Emily Gilmore as a Deb and all of her friends. And you can very easily picture her and maybe a younger Richard gathering with their friends in their salons and having these kinds of talks in 1969. And and I think this this movie really tracks with that feeling. I saw an interview with Tarantino about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and that 1969 time frame um, is absolutely pointed at as the big switch. And they specifically point at the Manson murders that that prior to that, people left their front door open. Kids played outside. There was like this feeling of like like you could have all these like 19 year olds just wandering around town having parties doing whatever versus the past the Manson murders. They point at that as like the time when people started locking their doors and started feeling like it's not safe. And you started watching your kids more more carefully and, and bringing them inside and, and that kind of stuff. Like they point to that culturally as like the big turning point. And that is that the same time frame, this 1969 time frame. Really fascinating that Stillman also has that in his heart as like this was a big switch from like innocence, everyone's free to do anything to like more locked down. And I think, you know, considering that this is a cast of almost if you watch watch the credits the entire cast is all in and introducing and introducing is is credit (laughs) is credit code for this is the first movie that this person has made it's the entire cast this was virtually everyone in this movie's first movie and for almost all of them their last movie and you do take he he's bringing a book to set every day caroline called how to direct a movie to the set with him every day (laughs) he was so baffled by eyelines and cinematography concepts that the people he hired to do that he just told them you guys have to take care of it i don't understand it i can't literally can't wrap my brain around how all of that works and the camera setups and the shots and the and the tracking and all that you just have to take care of all that stuff like i can't literally can't do it so like this is for a movie that was made by essentially film students you know without and the actors were basically either working jobs or going to act acting classes and or shooting this movie at any point in a 24-hour period and this guy who has no formal training in how to make a movie i think he actually captures a lot of things really well he certainly captures the time and spirit that he wants to but it this is movie is a satire also and you know i was i was uh, kind of attacking it early on as a movie that if you take it straight is very hard to digest being accessible to these people right but i think if you look at it as satire of this culture i mean i have in my notes this movie is is about the plight of the young socialite during the debutante season in the waning days of this kind of high society life that sounds silly and who who cares about dilettantes like that but these teens are also putting on airs. They're 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 expressing all of the themes of wanting to be accepted, wanting to be thought of as smart and cool yeah. and and intellectual, and they're arming themselves in these you know grandiose dialogues and monologues and speeches and Jane Austen and Fourier and socialism, all as armor for their insecurities of God. What if I'm not accepted by this group? 
that's universal. I, I think it leans wicked hard into like all our John Hughes Breakfast Club and stuff like that. But also for me, like I can remember like things like Crybaby or Hairspray or any of those things where you're just watching teenagers do their teenage thing and whichever this happens to be a super bougie, super rich world. You know, it's it's the same type of feeling of just going around. It's 16 candles. It's everything else. It's just a particular, you know, slice of the pie that most of us won't ever know anything about. But it can still be just as fascinating, I think. Yeah. I, I, yes. I think it is not universally accessible. Oh, no. If, but you but to, not all of them are. No, like, it's it's pretty in pink. I'm not I'm not sewing my own prom gown. I don't right. live on the opposite side of the tracks. I'm, I don't live with just my dad. Like, I'm not going to Goodwill to get my prom gown. So, like, it's... It's it's the it's kind of the polar opposite of Pretty in Pink. How about that? Where it's like, what if you did have all the money, and what if you did like have the party scene? What would that look like? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think if this movie, you have to kind of work to get what this movie is is doing. It it doesn't make it easy for you to get at what this movie is about. I mean, just the idea of these guys wrapping themselves up in this in this ub. Uh, acronym this urban haute uh, bourgeois z like lifestyle that they that they wear like a badge of honor throughout the movie and you hear about it this the sally fowler rat pack which i actually really like that and i love that i love that moniker and it made me laugh but that's i i think this movie is going to miss a lot of audience because it's so dense you're you're just not going to want to put the work into to understand that oh you actually probably can identify with a lot of what these kids are going through or at some point at some point in your life you could have identified with a lot what these guys are struggling with I, I think I think it's so specific. I, I kept talking about the Upper East Side because this movie is, is is a very specific group of people, and and my my worry is for the general audience to sit down and watch this. It's not going to be accessible. This movie is if like the New Yorker it made a movie, and even just saying that I'm I'm alienating a large swath of people who don't read the New Yorker or don't want to try and get the humor and the and the point of view of the New Yorker. Do you know what I mean? It's it's almost too smart for its own good. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But at the same time, I kind of feel like a lot of teenage shows and movies are like this, where they pick this really specific niche little group of people that, you know, either teenagers aspire to to uh, to be or they just want to get like a glimpse. Like, I mean, I think of the, the show uh, it was the movie Kids, right, where it's like mm. I don't relate to being on drugs and living on the streets or anything like that. But there's something voyeuristic where you want to watch. Well, what do they do? What is it like? Or I was thinking of Zendaya when she just did that like more recent one. Oh, um, Euphoria. Teenagers, their whole little world, what they're doing. Am I meeting a strange man at a motel when I'm 16, riding my bicycle or whatever? No. That's not quote-unquote relatable to me, but I still think that like specifically there's a group of people who want to see this sort of teenage slash, now this is like we said, 19, 20-year-olds. That little section, I don't think you have to dwell so hard on the, the Upper East Side portion as much as it's just it's a walk of life you don't have, but like you said, these shared universal themes of like not fitting in or or what do you what if you what do you do when you're being challenged from this kid who's like on the outside who's like really asking you a lot more questions and being like what are you talking about? I mean, I'm thinking about them sitting on those stairs and he's like challenging what she's reading and and sort of like not just accepting what she says. This is like I think it's um him and Audrey 
are sitting there and you know how she's just like talking about all these different books and he's like whatever like that's not even a good book or you know like he's actually challenging her i think there's a lot of moments like that in the teenage world that people want to live vicariously maybe they're not so brave as to challenge another person but they kind of want to be that person who does it I hear you, but you sat and you did the work to get there. It's more myopic than even you're saying. The 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 themes in kids, yeah, I, I can't identify with being a 13-year-old, you know, sex addict who does drugs, but I am empathetic and sympathetic to kids who are broken and who are troubled. And so I get a way into that movie, even though I can't identify with it. Every John Hughes movie, I never lived that kind of life, but the themes are so much larger than the setting and lifestyle of the people. I get there much quicker. These people are not these people are obnoxious to me. They are not enjoyable. I don't like their banter. When he's sitting on the steps mocking Jane Austen, only to learn like two scenes later, I don't read fiction because I can never forget that the stories are made up. So I only read literary criticisms. I want to punch that guy in the face so hard. I don't care what's coming out of his mouth. It's they, These funny. are just a group of people who deserve to get hit and wedgied. Oh, my God. I, well, okay. I think that's I, – I, they're Very I, extreme. I just find them extreme. They're so obtuse. Okay, but so you're bringing your walk of life into it then, and you're saying, like, the people who you might associate with these personalities just are so obnoxious, and I totally get that. I'm only taking it from a voyeuristic standpoint where you can sit back and be like, what if you don't have to put yourself in it, and you don't really have to judge it, you're just watching it? Then in that case, I'm saying, I don't think it's so complicated, and I don't think it's so difficult to watch as much as it is just, like, it isn't our walk of life, so what is it that these kids are doing? And, like, it is wild that they're doing these these parties and whatnot. Like it's all so outside of our realm of normal that there's some willingness to watch and like listen. Well, so here's the thing, and 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 maybe I'm I think I'm bringing a little bi- bit of bias to it. Also, is because I didn't go to school with these people, but I certainly have spent the last 20 years working with these people. When they leave college and they go get jobs, that's when I've met all of these people, and I've had to go rent a tux in the middle of a workday to go to a function that night where everyone else already had a tux at home. They didn't have to worry about it. Like I very much remember having to go scour down downtown Manhattan for a tux shop that was open and had a tux of my size for an event that I found out of that night. And everyone was like, well, just go throw on your tux. What? (laughs) I I don't have a tux. I live in Flushing. What are you talking about? What tux? I I think I have a little bit of vice because I've known these people and I've not liked them in person and I've not wanted to engage in their conversations in person. I, I find them, I find the airs upon which they put themselves so disagreeable that watching them in their slightly younger form does nothing for me. (laughs) Okay, I think that that's super duper fair. Are you ready to get to Is This a Christmas Movie? Sure. Definitely. Okay, so we talked about how just just the point that it that it's released January twentieth already. I'm feeling like all right, this is this is setting us up for a non Christmas movie. I really think that while these occasions that they're having, my goodness, December twenty sixth starts orgy week. Apparently, this happens during the holidays. Again, it's not a Christmas movie. It doesn't have any of the themes we're looking for. None of the music. Good Lord, the score was very 
wild. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was like, it, and it makes sense because it was like they were scoring footage that was like unplanned, unchoreographed. They had to score the footage so aggressively. Yes. To try to make you feel a certain way, even though it kind of does, it didn't always match what you were watching because what you were watching is just this, like like we said, guerrilla warfare type footage mm-hmm. that no one was scripted what they were doing. So then when the music's playing, you're like, well, this doesn't really match the music, but they're wanting you to feel a certain way. So they're just like, please just pretend that the people in the scenes doing what we said, the music tells you they're doing like, oh my gosh, him running to the tuck shop. I think I even recorded it to you and sent it to you. There was no part of that that sounded so bouncy and silly and kooky as the music was trying to make it sound. But I guess that's how they wanted to make you feel. Well, that's where like the Wes Anderson-ness of it all comes in is, you know, this movie walks so that Wes Anderson quirkiness could run. And the scoring, I think, is kind of a part of like that, that, that kind of bouncy, quirky music of him trying to get to the tuxedo shop before it closes. Like that felt very Wes Anderson-y to me. Whereas the humor and the satire and the winkiness of the satire of look at these people, like, can you believe these people exist and we're watching them like like zoo exhibits it's wild is very woody allen satire-esque to me um mm. just the other side of manhattan you know the upper you know that he's upper west versus the upper east wasp versus jewish i agree with you doesn't always work trying working really hard uh you know to manipulate you and and tell you what you're supposed to feel here you know i read a bunch of different reviews of this movie uh, from the intelligentsia who all love this movie at least three of them said a version of the quote nothing much happens in metropolitan and and all of those were glowing reviews of the movie and they and they all say that and you know what it's a hundred percent true so the music has to work really hard because there's nothing going on here in between yeah. long monologues that don't actually mean anything or have any kind of substance to them for it's plot just like wise, a week in the life it's not one of those movies where you know we're following it and something big's gonna happen and then we're gonna follow up on what happened it's not like that it's just like we're just bouncing into these couple weeks in these in these people's lives right. and we're just gonna watch what happens fly on the wall style a little bit like vignette style i mean we've we've seen a lot of these kind of vignette movies a week in the life a year in the life of the of the smith family right and meet me in st louis or holiday Inn that travels you know follows fred and bing you know across all of the holidays of a year this is kind of every day of these guys winter break which debutante ball they're going to honestly i i actually like this movie more as it went on and i actually like the hampton i like the last couple minutes of this movie where they wind up in the hamptons that actually felt kind of human that felt very accessible to me not the fact that they were in the hamptons but you know these two guys convincing themselves that this woman that they've both decided they love is in peril so they're going to go white knight out to her and that's exactly what she was waiting for turns out they have no money and no way to get home like i like that i actually found that very accessible i was like i wish i this is the kind of movie i wish it would have been the full hour in 40 minutes um but it has nothing to do with Christmas. It is. Okay. It could be purely any time of the year. You know, any time of. It could be their Easter break. I'm sure. I'm sure there's these salons are going on during their Easter break too, when they all come back home. Any time where these guys come back home and reunite for any length of time, I think this movie could take place. A, a thousand percent. The scene that sticks out to me is the cha cha scene when they're all doing the cha cha. That that is <laughs> such a part from Gilmore Girls where like Lorelai starts dancing with her, which would have been her high school sweetheart Christopher and they've all been like classically trained on how to do all the different dances and I think you could also you could make an argument that if you liked dirty dancing and you wanted to see where those rich kids went to during the Christmas break as opposed to the Mm. summer break you could I mean am I right like 
that's a lot of these kids are a very similar, you know, social class. And I think you could see a lot of the same holiday activities. Yeah, I mean, and so you guys may be listening and and asking us why on earth? What in the world? Why on why <laughs> why on earth did you put this on your fifty two weeks of Christmas podcast? Because if you check out the the smart websites and the smart outlets, they all list this movie. I mean, this movie is made Criterion's Twelve Days of Criterion Christmas. This is on British Film Institute, the BFI. It's on their ten great indie Christmas films. But if you read the reviews. The ones that address whether or not this actually is a Christmas movie or is good for Christmas, almost all of them say it has nothing to do with Christmas. It's just a movie that takes place during that time of the year, and people that are smart and want you to know they're smart and want to feel smart will tell you to watch this movie during Christmas time because you'll feel smart too. So. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, on that note, let's get to some fast facts, Mike. Please. It's included amongst the American Film Institute's 2000 list of the 500 movies nominated for the top 100 funniest American movies. That makes me weep for the state of you know what, humor. It does want me to tell our audience that if you're enjoying 52 weeks of Christmas, you should stick with us for the 52 weeks of comedies coming up next. What a tease. Because then maybe we'll get a chance to talk about the top 100 funniest American movies. We'll revisit that fact. Spoilers. Metropolitan will not be in that 52 weeks of comedies. (laughs) But you know what? When we do our 52 weeks of comedies, we'll reference back to this one and you can come check this one out. We we will cross pollinate it for sure. (laughs) So welcome if you're here from 52 weeks of comedies. How is it going in the future? (gasps) This is like a weird time travel. Leave us a comment. (laughs) Did the Mets win the World Series next year? Tell me. (laughs) No. Look at me, I'm like a soothsayer. Metropolitan was actually nominated for the Best Original Screenplay at the 63rd Annual Academy Awards. It lost to Bruce Joel Rubin for his screenplay for Ghost, that Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, Whoopi Goldberg. Girl, you're in danger. I love that movie. Uh, (laughs) Girl, you in danger. It did win the Independent Spirit Award for Best First Feature. So lost one, won one. Well, and it also holds a 93% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 41 reviews with an average rating of 7.7. I find this wild, but I will accept that this definitely hits some people exactly where they wanted to hit. Well, remember, and that is the critics rating on this movie. The critical consensus from Rotten Tomatoes is that Quote, Metropolitan gently skewers the young socialite class with a smartly written dramedy whose unique specific setting yields rich universal truths, which is true if you can sit through and get to it. And and again, and I know I made it sound like I hated this movie. I didn't. You really did. You started this off. But I'd like to think that maybe I changed you a little bit in this. I hope that our conversation actually made you feel a little bit more open to it. There are parts of this movie that I... I no, say I did. Yes. Say I did. You, you did. It, it, <laughs> it was good to talk this movie out a little bit. And, and I like do, doing these non-Christmas movies, even though they turn out to be non-Christmas movies, because they're, it's just good to talk them through and relate it to the conversation 
conversation is, is this a good movie besides or next to whether or not it's a good Christmas movie? There are parts of this movie that I, I enjoyed immensely. There are part, there are some performances I liked in this movie a lot. I really like Christopher uh, Eichmann's Nick Smith. Oh, my God. He's so digger, you guys. When you hear his voice, you're going to die. You're going to be like, oh, my God. You know, I like uh, Taylor Nichols, who plays Charlie Black. He is the glasses-wearing guy who, who spouts a lot of philosophy and is in love with Audrey. I loved him, too. There was that one part where he goes, what was the line? I'm not going to say it exactly right, but he says something like, not in to get into the sordid details. And then he goes, well, we could have some of the sordid details. And I was like, I love you. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he, I feel like everyone kind of knows a version of this guy in every social I circle. I a little bit of that guy when I said, like, we could know a little bit of the sordid details. You know, he's got an opinion for everything. He's got this unrequited crush that she has no idea, but he's super sensitive about defending Audrey's honor. I, I really liked, I liked Carolyn uh, Farina as Audrey. I, I actually thought she was very enjoyable to watch. I wish she had gone on to do more movies. I think this might have been a one and done for her. Maybe she made one more movie. She was actually cast while um, the director's wife was shopping at Macy's and Farina was working in the perfume section and had no previous acting experience. That's the thing. As much as like a movie like Kids, you're just taking real life kids or real life young adults mm-hmm. and you're just making them say the lines. There's something that has some authenticity to it that you might have to get past the fact that maybe they're not so great at quote acting with it but it's something that you could realistically hear them say like she grew up in the city herself for real and really works there and really is there and it's like you know you get that part of her the costumes we've talked a bunch about the tuxedos and and the ball grounds The, the costuming for this movie is actually pretty interesting all of those tuxedos the assistant director for the movie he went and charmed the head of at harris formal wear he agreed to give us all the suits for the for the movie and he agreed to let us shoot there and play and he played the tailor he said that he got so much business from the film that he was able to buy a country house wow yeah. <laughs> that's amazing i love that and then additionally the costume designer actually got her friends to send their cotillion dresses up to new york so that they could use them and the other dresses were just hired from like a party dress rental place but that's like so funny to me everyone this was like a big borrow and steal kind of movie. oh it was it absolutely was i mean those were imported right out of chattanooga tennessee very cotillion yeah so this is considered by many people to be the first of an informal trilogy of movies that with stillman would go on to make metropolitan in 1990 1994 he follows it up with barcelona and in 1988 he has the last days of disco in reading about it the general consensus is it's essentially about the acid tongues and broken hearts of some haplessly erudite young americans in new york and abroad and each of those movies takes place at a different time span different characters but the idea of americans uh young americans dealing with their circumstances at a particular place in time whether it's 1969 dead season in new york or the end of you know studio 54 in the last days of disco in the late 70s early 80s or you know barcelona in the 80s and the 90s where anti-american sentiment was super high and trying to be an american there is presenting its own sorts of problems so Whit Stillman has like this uh this american got a nostalgic kind of like feel to him he's wistful for another time it, it seems very much like he he is still processing his own kind of coming of age. Yeah, yeah. And all of his movies are kind of trying to filter or process another aspect of that coming of age time that we all go through. And there is some cross-pollination in his movies. There are a couple of characters who are in multiple movies with him. And I only know that from the 25-year um, reunion show that they were doing and the, the, they were talking about that in the interview, which I have to say, if you guys get a chance to watch that, go 
check it out on YouTube. Just look up Metropolitan 20, 25 years and you can see this. And honestly, Stillman, oof, he was so, I like a whole thing about people who are being interviewed, who are being sort of like hostile to the interviewer. Like they, they were not gelling. And so there was something about that, that he was so prickly um, with the interviewer that I, I, I don't, it was, it was odd, but at the same time, you really got his personality because he wasn't giving you these canned responses. He was being so like raw with him in a way that was borderline unprofessional, but I mean, it was real. So whatever that is, I feel like that's what this movie is. Edward Clements, who plays Tom, he's the protagonist, the red hair protagonist, the unusual outsider. Right. He would only actually act in one more movie, and then he became a born-again Christian, uh, then a pastor, and lives in Toronto. That suits Tom just right, because right. he was very much needing to be born again. He was feeling like this was not his lot in life, so yeah. fascinating. All right, Mike, are you ready for some Jingle Bell ratings? Uh, sure. Okay, but before we do, could you please hit me up with some sort of little, I don't know, say sampler of what's going to be next? Oh, I will. And you got a sample for me? Y'all get ready for this one coming up next week. It is a hoot. You don't really know Jackie, Lieutenant. I think I do. I like that crazy kid. I like that one man look in her eyes. I only wish it was a different kind of guy. I told her she could go home, but she wants to do her job. Hey, didn't she tell me your plane goes out tonight? Yeah, I've got a cab waiting outside. He's going to take me right to the airport. Be in San Francisco in the morning, huh? I'm not going to San Francisco. Oh? No, I'm going back to camp. <laughs> you know, I've learned a hundred years worth of life in the last 24 hours. I found out that you just don't do things because other people have done the same things the same way. The important thing is being honest with yourself, whatever you feel, whatever you are. That's why I said I think I know Jackie better than you think I do. Or maybe I mean... I know Abigail. You're all right, Lieutenant. Beyond being a, a, an important life lesson about uh, doing things because you want to do them, not because people tell you to, and taking place in an old-timey sound, I don't know how much you could get from that clip I just played. I have no idea what this movie is, Mike. What are we doing next week? We are doing 1944's crime noir thriller, Christmas Holiday. Starring Deanna Durbin and starring a very young Gene Kelly. Fascinating. Yes. I'm excited about this one. Uh, it's unlike anything we have watched thus far. Christmas holiday may be the most Christmassy thing about it, but guys, go watch it. It's definitely worth your time. You can find it for free on YouTube. I believe that is the only place you can find it streaming online. I don't think even Amazon has it. Uh, so Christmas holiday, 1944 cut starring Deanna Durbin and Gene Kelly. That is next week's movie. Let's hit up some <laughs> jingle bells. I am going to give this movie, and remember folks, this is only about whether or not it's a Christmas movie. I am going to give this one a one. <laughs> because it just doesn't have anything to do with it. And beyond the fact that there's a Christmas tree in the room and beyond the fact that, yes, yes, they are technically out on holiday break. This just has nothing to do with Christmas. It, it is a movie that I think if you like Gilmore Girls, you should absolutely go check it out just to see Digger. I think that you will enjoy that quite a bit. But other than that, I see no Christmas out there for this one. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm giving it a 1.5 uh, only because I gave Kiss Kiss Bang Bang a one. We both did. And I did not like that movie in any way, shape or form. Plus, it had nothing to do with Christmas. I actually find it offensive to Christmas. And so I like this movie better than that. 
And they, you know, had some really pretty Christmas trees, and it definitely evoked a Christmas in New York vibe. Uh, I felt the cold on my face. I felt the the way the air spills in New York at night during the Christmas season. Watching this movie, very much so. And that is a as a born and bred New Yorker, I love that time of the year. It is one of my favorite places to be. It's earning an, an extra half point. Well, I was actually going to ask you because I I felt like maybe just because they were showing the plaza so much and not other places. I actually thought it was lacking in the exterior Christmas of New York City. Like, I felt like there should have been more twinkly lights and more, like, storefront, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, that's yeah. why it actually stopped me because I thought the same exact thing as you. I've seen New York City at Christmas time and the exteriors of the buildings are so beautiful and everything's so twinkly and shiny that I was kind of missing. Yeah, that, it's so. a, it's definitely a little bit like they were going out of their ways to not uh, do that. And, and remember, they were not shooting this. I actually don't think they didn't shoot this during christmas time i'm sure not. i think they i think they, it was winter time because all the actors talked about how it was they shot only at night and it was zero degrees all the time they bonded together actually very well as a cast because they had to huddle for warmth constantly through long nighttime shoots when it was freezing so i think you know not being able to afford set dressing on external buildings that's probably the lack of uh, of Christmas decorations other than when they were in people's apartments, what they were borrowing. So, yeah, I think that's a little bit of of the practical reason. But there, this very much conveyed cold in New York at night. And that that's a whole vibe for me that I, I can close my eyes and I can feel it and I can smell it and I can I can taste it literally on the wind. And uh, yeah, so it's going to get it's going to get a half point there for for some of the most basic Christmas aesthetics. But uh, yeah, this movie has nothing to do with Christmas. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe while you're there. And while you were there, if you could leave us a five star rating, that would be most appreciated so that when we eventually say farewell together, I could give you a top hat. Because I think that is just about the classiest (laughs) farewell present you can give someone a nice top hat. Oh my gosh, so practical. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.